Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. First thing to talk about today is a package that I skipped last episode intentionally because I didn't want to shortchange it. And that is PyQt5. I've had good and bad experiences with PyQt in general, and PySide, we'll get to that in a moment, and, and Python in general, I will say that. So, I'm hoping to bring sort of a, um, a, a balanced view of what it's like to try to write a desktop application in Python and Qt. And I'm not an expert in this, but I, I'm going to leverage my lack of expertise and interesting experiences for that balance. I, I feel like sometimes an expert in something, I mean, we're all probably expert at something in our lives, and a lot of times when you're the expert, you really do lose sight of really, really practical things that all the non-experts have to deal with. You think it's not a big deal. You say, don't worry about it, it's super simple. Here, I'll show you. And you do something that no one else understands, and, and you just don't understand why they don't understand it. And you think they're being trivial, and they think you're being obtuse or stuck up. Nobody wins. It's awkward, nobody likes it, it's painful. It happens a lot in open source software, I think. Be because we all, we all have different expectations of, of how something should, should act, and what level of sort of tolerance we have for the thing that is going wrong. So, here we go. My, my very, very short list of, of the good and the bad about PyCute and PySide, but again, we'll get to that. So, the good. It's Python. Is that going to be the, the first thing on my bad list as well? How perceptive of you. So, the good. It's Python. That means that when you open up w uh, an application written in PyCute or PySide, but we'll get to that, and, and look at it, you'll probably sort of have an understanding of what's going on. And I say that from from a place that of, of understanding that that's not necessarily everyone's experience when they look at Python. But if you've seen Python before, and maybe you've seen some C++ cute code before, maybe not, but if you've seen Python before, you've done a little, you know, you're not a total beginner at Python, you can kind of look at it and think, okay, I understand what's happening here, I think. This is connecting to that because it's, it's set up this 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 signal and, and it's pointing at that slot so yes i see how that's working you know and you can kind of step through and, and or even something simple like okay that's creating a button i mean granted that's relatively easy to see in c++ code as well but but it, i mean it's just you you get the idea you know in python you see the code and it's it's almost at the good places it's almost like just a little script i mean it, it's it's very rarely like a script but i'm saying there are chunks of it a lot of times within a class within a function where you, 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 you're seeing things happen. You know, you see, okay, this is creating the interface because there's a field, there's a combo box, there's a button, button, button. Oh, here's a toolbar thing. Yeah, I get this. And, and you'll understand it because it's Python and it's, 
it's readable, which is what Python likes to think that it is a lot. And, and a lot of times it is, to be fair. So that's a good thing. Second good thing about this, the UI that it creates is really, really nice. I, I can't, I, I mean, look, I don't have to, right? I mean, I'm, I'm a KDE user. I love the Qt framework. I think that it's, it's one of the best frameworks out there. I just love it. I think it's one of the best, really, I, I think it's, can I just say it's the best? I think it might be the best framework out there for GUIs. I mean, I'm, am I saying that I love, again, that I love how programming deals with constructing visual interfaces in general? Do I love how programming works in general? Not necessarily. I, I'm, you know, I, I still think we have a ways to go to make it really, really simple. But cute, for what we've got, I think cute is the pinnacle. Or a pinnacle, anyway. Maybe there's more than one pinnacle. There are peaks and valleys, and cute is a peak. So, you get that now with Python. And honestly, like, if you're looking at other... If you're looking to make a Python GUI, a, a, a graphical user interface with a backend of Python, then cute is probably, I think, your best bet. There are others out there. There's... Python, Wix widget, WX widgets for Python. Um, I don't recommend that. I've used it. I do not recommend it. Cute, I strongly recommend. I would go to Cute and Python, no question about it. Easy choice. And then the third nice thing about PyCute is that it is uh, cross-platform, which, you know, always kind of, I mean, that that's going to get high marks from, from me all the time. I, I think cross-platform is just, that's what we should be doing in computing right now. That it's just not, not really even a question. Like, yes, if, if, if you can do cross-platform, then do cross-platform because it's silly for us to continue to, to separate the the experience of of users based on i don't know really arbitrary decisions um so it's it's nice when something is cross-platform i say that understanding that it's also very difficult to be cross-platform but again that's a good thing like that's almost a fourth good point about this it's cross-platform like with underlines it's it's really really cross-platform so you don't have to be in other words you have to think a lot less about what you need to do in order for your application to work on that program uh, on that os or or on that os when you're using cute because Cute has already figured that out. Python has, in theory, already figured that out. You don't have to deal with all those special cases. Your your tool set is doing it for you. And I think that's great. I think we need, I would argue, more of that in programming. I know that some programmers who are really smart and, and are doing those things, like they're, they're writing the things that do the magic for you, they're, they're thinking, well, no, that's not how programming works. But I'm saying at a certain level, that's what people want it that's what that's how they they want it to work that's how i want it to work i want to be able to get the the whole package i want the cross-platformedness i want the levels the layers of abstraction i want the 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 things that where i you know when i create a button the button just appears like i don't have to define the button i just want the button i want to make it really really simple like i want all programming to be as easy as html and css which anyone who's tried to, uh, what's the joke? Anyone who's done a, a, tried to do a vertical align with CSS will tell you that it's not easy, but I mean, still, that easy would be really cool. And PyCute, while not that easy, is, it, it, it's, it's worlds away easier than you know, C++ and Qt. So really, really good. Four points 
for why it's good. It's Python, it's a great UI, great framework, and it's cross-platform. Oh, I said four. It's a great platform. There, there's your four. Okay, now let's talk about the bad things. The bad things. It's Python. Look, I don't mean to, to be down on Python, but I mean... Honestly, Python has its drawbacks. There are definite things about Python that are not fun to deal with. And if you don't like to deal with those things, you're probably going to want to avoid them. And and certainly writing something in PyCute would not assist you in avoiding that. So if you're not a fan of Python, or if you've just gotten to the point where you can't be a fan of Python because it has just, just enough annoyances that you just don't want to, you you don't want to deal with it, then, then this is, that's a bad aspect of PyQt, obviously. Um, The next thing is there's a bit of confusion right now over PyQt and PySide. PyQt was a thing, it was being developed, it is being developed, I think, by Riverbank Computing, and then for whatever reason, somebody, and I don't remember who it was, came out with PySide. PySide was, it's PyQt, but it's it's PySide, and 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 so now we have PyQt and we have PySide. They're not like completely interchangeable, so you have to make a choice. You won't know which one to choose. You'll go back and forth for days. You'll you'll finally settle on whichever one you manage to install correctly, and and you'll go in that direction. And then about halfway through your project, you'll regret it and think you should have gone the other way. And in the end, it didn't matter anyway. It, it, honestly, it doesn't. They're both the same, except they're not the same. It's it's stupid. It's confusing. I don't like it. Um, I I don't know why. And I know usually I'm I'm solidly in the position of like, hey, it's open source. Give me all the choices. But in this case, it just I feel like the two choices, like I said, are are just so I just don't understand why I would choose one over the other. And then if I do have to make that choice, I feel like I'm kind of I, I'm I'm. I'm making a choice between two, two things that, like, it would just be better if they weren't two different things. There might be some subtlety about them that I just don't quite understand. As I as I vaguely understand, PySide is actually supported by the Qt Foundation, so in theory, PySide versioning should be really, really easy to understand along with Qt versioning, which PyQt, on the other hand, is by a sort of an external entity, as it were, and so sometimes Qt will update itself, but Py, PyQt won't get the update yet, and so, you know, you, you won't be able to update your Qt unless, uh, until PyQt gets updated and so on. So I guess that's one reason to, to choose PySide. And that's another bad thing, is that that version thing, the, the versioning um, connection, the tenuous connection between PyQt and 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 cute itself. So PyCute is, it's not, you know, it's, it isn't magic. It, it's Python bindings that sort of talk to the cute framework. The cute framework is not written in Python. It's, it's C++. So Python talking to that framework, it, it takes some, you know, some non-trivial coding to, to get those Python to be able to just call those, those libraries and, and make them appear and so on. So it is, you know, that there's, there's maintenance to do whenever cute changes something on its back end, then PyQt has to scramble and change things on the way that Py, you know, that it's, that it's module, PyQt, uh, talks to whatever Qt framework you have installed. That can be a problem sometimes. I mean, if you decide in your 
application journey that you're using PyQt, then you know you're signing up for very careful tracking of the Qt project and the PyQt project and understanding when they align. Luckily, they both use the same version numbers, so it's not like it, there, there's not a question of, oh, I need PyQt 48.5 because that's what aligns to Qt 5.12. No, it's Qt 5.12. Guess which PyQt you need, right? 5.12. So that 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 makes it simple to understand. It's just that it is a step in your maintenance that you have to make sure those two things align. Is that a big deal? Probably not. I mean, programmers kind of deal with that all the time, really. Like if you're using one library that requires another library, then if you update the the foundational library, then the other one might need updating as well, you know? So I mean, it's it isn't that big of a deal. Like, like that's that's not unheard of. It is just a thing that you have to keep in mind, which maybe you didn't know. So I think that that's that's well. I'll I'll say the fourth bad thing, and then and then I'll get into sort of the bigger picture. So the fourth bad thing is how the heck do you package a Python desktop application? Honestly, like seriously, somebody could someone please explain this to me? I I, I understand that there's something having to do with maybe packaging it up for Py. Pi, and then people can install it with pip or something, and there are Python wheels, and you should be using an environment, a virtual environment in Python so that you don't get anything wrong, and then you shouldn't use the, the, what, what was it called, um, the, I don't know, the, the, the git install config file, you should be using the toml file now. It's just, I don't know, I've, I've never been happy with Python packaging. I really, I haven't been. Is it any different than any other packaging? Probably not. And again, this is my non-expertise speaking here, but it's just, I feel like programming is hard enough, and then at the end of your journey, you, you, it suddenly dawns on you that now you have to ship this to other people, and you realize that's really hard to do. I mean, this is one of the beautiful things about Java. It, it's, it's, it's quote-unquote hard until you make it a jar file and just send someone the jar file. Imagine that. Like, it's just, it just, it's just right there. It's all there, and it's cross-platform, and it's in a jar file. Like, that is nice. I know. There are, there are exceptions, there are times when that doesn't work, there are complications. That could be easier too. However, the Python thing for packaging, I just, I don't understand how you're supposed to do it. I really don't. And then it's different on every platform, of course. Um, it, it, it gets complex. And then you're, so you're sending your application out to people and you're telling them, well, first you have to install this uh, cute package. Well, that's from, that's from over here on cute.io or whatever their site is these days. Uh, yeah, okay. And then you have to go get PyQt. Those are the foundational libraries. Well, here, I'll write you an installer for that, but you still have to get Qt yourself. Uh, oh, but you have to get that version. Okay, well, I'll, I'll write an installer for that as well, I guess, but you still have, yeah, let's do that. So I'll, I'll package all that stuff together, you know, and so you're just, you're, I just, it, my, my mind boggles at the concept of all the things you have to try to manage when doing what you set, what started out as a very simple application. Oh, I'll just write a really quick application in Python, and it'll just use Qt, so it's just all on my computer already, and it's really super simple. And then, and then it just, your world falls apart as you try to package it up for Windows, and for Mac, and for a different Linux distribution, or for a Flatpak. Maybe we'll just go app image. Oh my gosh, no, that doesn't work. Let's go back to Flatpak. It's just, it's out of the control. So, and again, not an expert here, but I'm using that as a strength. I'm saying that if you are not an expert and you believe you are just sort of waltzing into this sort of magical land of talking to a very complex toolkit with a relatively simple programming language, then 
there are a lot of things that you're going to have to learn about, like packaging and, and figuring out which version to use and how to get your users to be on that same version and so on. Very complex. So that's four bad things. It's Python. There's a thing called PySide and there's a thing called PyQ. That's two things. Um, so one, Python. Two, PySide confusion. Three, version control. Four, packaging. So I've got four good things and four bad things. How predictable is it that, that they, they, they both have the same number? Actually, I only had three good things if we're fair, right? Because it's cross-platform on there twice. So, but, but I want there to be at least four or five good things because overall, this is a good thing. I'm, I don't mean to be really down on PyQt. I just want to set expectations because a lot of times I think people see this and they think, well, this is really cool. And it is cool. And that's what I'm going to, that's what I want to go into right now because I said I had both good and bad experiences. My bad experiences, I feel like I've already kind of gotten them across. You know, it's hard to program is probably what it boils down to. It's hard to program. It's hard to distribute. There's a lot of stuff to think about. It's complex. Do not approach a PyQt application like you do a bash script. It's not the same thing. It's very different. You really have to think about what you're what you're getting yourself into, what kind of platforms you're going to be able to support, how people are going to install things, and so on. It is difficult. Using PyQt, believe it or not, is a lot easier than using Py Wix widgets or whatever, um, and, and other tools, in my opinion. that That's just my opinion. PyQt of the Python, write a desktop application with Python, I would say PyQt is is definitely a great, great contender. I don't know about Py... I think, is there still a PyGTK? Or is that what... Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I don't know about that one. But um, PyQt makes it easy, but it's it's not easy. Now, I have had an experience uh, for years with PyQt, actually PySide, uh, that was really, really positive. And that was at a uh, production house that used Qt applications anyway. It was an integral part of their, uh, of the studio uh, application set. There were applications written in Qt and everything, all the applications had a Python um, scripting extension. And so you could just, you could use PySide to create your own interfaces and then use the Py ext- Python extension uh, extensibility plugin thing in that app of that application, like an API to, um, to put your little panels, your cute panels or your cute pop-ups, whatever, uh, into that application where you could make buttons in that application that would then launch your little extension. It was a really, really big deal, and it was a really, really great experience. It was so easy. It really was like writing Bash scripts. It was just, you would just open up your text editor, you would look at the API, or not the API, you'd look at the documentation for PyQt and the documentation for the application. So yeah, I guess that is the API. Uh, and you, but that doesn't matter really. But, um, you know, whatever it is, you can write the the PyQt, you just text editor, write your Python in your, not PyQt, I keep saying PyQt, it was actually PySide that we were using. You just write your little windows and things like that with PySide, and suddenly you're you're extending applications, and, and it's super easy, and you never have to worry about versioning or, or what's installed, because it was a set, you knew your environment 100%. So, I mean, I think, I'm going to imagine 
that any programming is easier when you have a homogenous environment across all of the computers that you're programming for. But with PyQt, I will say that that's sort of the dream of just being able to make desktop applications that look like native desktop applications and act like native desktop applications. That was realized at that job where... Yeah, all the computers are the same. The versions of everything was standardized. It, it just worked. It just absolutely, it was so easy. And it was, it was like glimpsing, getting a glimpse into, into the future, you know, or, or into the, into what we were all promised, I guess, when we're thinking about sort of computing. I mean, it was just so easy and everything was cross-platform and it, it just, everything just kind of magically, magically worked. And it was so nice. And it was, like I say, it was as easy as you had an idea in the morning and you thought, you know what, I'm just going to write a quick bash script to calculate, you know, this, this value for me or something like that. Well, why not write a quick Python application to uh, take that shape and transform it uh, and double it in size. How hard can it be? Well, it turns out not very hard at all. It's really, really easy. You just look up the, the function within the application that you want to hook into, and then you do the normal Pi side things to generate your GUI, and it all works. I mean, I, can you imagine, as an open source enthusiast, if it were always that easy, like if someone rang you up and said, hey, I need, I need an application to convert, um, you know, I'm, I'm buying an application to convert images and it's going to cost me, I don't know, 15 bucks, even $15. And you, you, you know, in your head, you're just thinking, don't spend your $15 on some poorly written application that you're going to download and it's not going to work right. And you have to struggle with it. And then it's going to go out of date in a month. So, so don't do that. I'll just, here, hold on. I'll, I'll write you a quick application to do it and I'll send it to you. And you could do that. Like, how cool would that be? I mean, I think that would be amazing. You could just, you know, because I mean, uh, there are so many times where people will ask me a question and I'll think, yes, I can, I could help you with that. I can, I could make that super easy for you. Uh, but you'd have to switch to Linux and you'd have to learn how to run a command in a terminal. So all told three years and you'll be set to go to bulk convert all of your big PNG files from your camera down to really high quality but small file size WebP. And it'll only take three years. It'll be great. Well, obviously someone's going to go spend their 15 bucks on some really poorly written application because, I mean, that that works. That's better than your option. And and wouldn't it be cool in like some fantasy world where someone could call you up and say, hey, I want to do a bulk conversion uh, thing. Can you, do you know how to do that because it's taking me days to um, open every file in my uh, photo editor and save it as and and I'm doing that for you know a thousand five hundred and thirty three images could you make that faster for me you're like yeah hold on give me give me like an afternoon I'll 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 send you a really quick uh, little application that you can launch and it you'll just point the application to the, the the file, the folder containing all of your images, and it'll do the rest. And you could do that with a, a quick and simple Python loop that, that just creates a little cute window, gives you a file chooser, bang, done, and then pipes, pipes that command through um, whatever 
pill is, what is it, pillow now, uh, and, and then it's done. And you wouldn't have to worry about, oh, what version of Qt do you have installed? Can you install Qt? Okay, well, in order to call install Qt on Mac, you have to do Xcode. So download Xcode, and then, the you know, it's just, it's a nightmare to try to figure out. But what if it wasn't? What if it was just all there? It would be amazing. I guess that leads me ultimately, like it has led everyone, back to the web browser. I mean, that's why the web browser is such a popular... This is a complete non-sequitur. I'm just saying, that's why the web browser is so darned easy and so darned popular, because that is exactly what people are finding is possible. I mean, even, like, look at, uh, what is it, um, Electron. That's the, the GUI framework, essentially, for JavaScript... Uh, for, for JavaScripting, um, and I think Node and stuff like that, uh, and 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 a web browser backend, and people, you know, online they tend to despise that because they think, why are you shipping a whole web browser? because it's a universal GUI framework. Why wouldn't you ship a web browser with your application? That's the one thing you can guarantee everyone will be able to just install and run on a system. And it works the same for everyone. Where's the drawback to that? There is no drawback there, except that they're downloading a five gigabyte application, that's an exaggeration, um, just to bulk convert some images down to WebP. I, I get the, I get the quote unquote problem, but also I just don't see the problem. Um, I think, I think, I think that's, I think that's the answer, you know, ultimately, I, I really do. Anyway, that's PyCute. I guess, in summary, to, ma- to make my ra- random rambling thoughts a little bit more succinct, PyCute. It is fantastic, as long as you understand that there are versions and installation uh, issues, and you, you know you, you have to put a lot of thought into how you're going to get that application that's written in one language that's tethered carefully to a framework that might not already exist on all the platforms that you might be targeting. If you if you don't want to think about that, then you probably don't want to you probably don't want to go down the path of PyQt and and honestly, I'm not sure that you'd want to go down the path of Python desktop applications. Th- those are my thoughts. You might want to look at something like Electron or or Java, something where you can either ship everything that the person needs to run it or or you might want to look into something that I don't know that everyone is likely to have on their on their system, which again again I think is a web browser, and then you're just writing a web app instead of shipping code. And and hey, if someone has something better, if someone has the the right answer to this, I am more than happy to hear it because I'm not I don't mean to assert anything here. I'm just saying in my experience, this has been a difficult problem to solve, and I don't think I'm alone here. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't have uh, Electron and and Java and flat packs and things like that that are seeking to deliver an application easily to lots of different platforms without any expectation of what exists on that target computer. So, But but if there is something that I'm missing, then hey, uh, let me know about it. I would be eager to hear that. Let's go drink some coffee. back with coffee and 
Roasted hazelnuts. Yeah, I got some, uh, I think they're hazelnuts. Are they hazelnuts or chestnuts? No, I think they're hazelnuts. Anyway, I got these hazelnuts or something from a neighbor who who has a tree that, that produces these hazelnuts or chestnuts. I'm pretty sure they're hazelnuts. And I decided, because I thought they were chest, chestnuts, I decided to put them on top of the fireplace. Because today, like today, it, the, it, the high is six Celsius. So that's cold. Um, so, well, it's, I mean, it's not freezing, but it's, it's pretty cold. Um, so I put the, some chestnuts, no, some hazelnuts on top of the fireplace and they roasted and it was really, really, or they toasted, you know, uh, really, really good. And, uh, with coffee, a little bit of roasted hazelnut on the side, that was good. So that was fun. And, uh, now we're still talking about cute in a way because the next package in this list, well, technically the next package would be Q scintilla, but we talked about that in the previous episode. So, uh, the next application in the list is Cute AV. And Cute AV, I didn't know how, honestly, I don't even know how I got it installed. So maybe I should even check. No, I mean, it's obviously, what am I talking about? It's in Slackware. Okay, so now I know how it got installed. For a very long time, I was not clear on how it had gotten. I thought, did I install this with like Cute Creator? Like, did that come bundled with Cute Creator or something? I couldn't figure out how Cute AV got on my computer, or where it came from, what, whose project it was. Just wasn't really sure. Well, it's, you can go to cuteav.org. That's qtav.org. And you can read all about it. It is essentially a multimedia playback framework based on Cute and FFmpeg. So, what's the advantage here? Well, the advantage is that the alternative is Cute Multimedia. And Cute Multimedia is the thing that gets shipped, you know, you get that with the Cute framework by, just for free. Like, that just comes with Cute, uh, Cute, uh, the Cute framework includes Cute Multimedia. And Cute Multimedia can play some codecs, some forms of media, but not not all of them. FFmpeg, by contrast, just plays practically anything you throw at it. So Cute AV combines FFmpeg with the Cute framework to produce uh, a, a simple player, but it's more than that. It's, it's also, I mean, it is an, and it, it's a, it's a library that you could use. You can use it in QML, you could use it in your C++. Can you use it with Python? I don't know. I haven't actually looked into that, and I, I never thought to look until, until just now, when I, you know, now that I'm just talking about PyCute previously. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty simple little method to, to, to play back media without worrying about extra codecs. That's huge. Um, for me, for the longest time, I feel like I'm being really negative in this episode. Um, for me, in a long time, um, I, I I just got annoyed at Cute AV because, like I said, I, I didn't exactly know where it came from, and it would always just pop up. Like if I would go to um, if I would go to anywhere on my drive with a video on it, I would click on something, right click on it, and it would, the, the default option, it seemed, to always be Cute AV Player. And it drove me crazy because I didn't want it to open in Cute AV Player. I wanted it to open in Dragon. I don't remember why. It was just whatever, you know, whatever reason, I just, I, I, I didn't want it to be in cute AV player. I, I, cause I, I don't remember why exa- exactly, but I mean, there are some features in Dragon that I just happen to maybe like, or maybe that I'm just used to, like the way that it lists everything in a playlist sort of 
when it when a when a thing that you're watching is over, it just adds it to your to almost a queue that has well, it's, it's a history really, but it just it just populates its own window. So little weird things like that that are completely inconsequential, but for me, for the you know for what I was doing out of convenience, that's what I wanted. And I just, I had to set like every media type practically, you know, if it was an MP4, WebM, uh, AVI, XVID, what, whatever codec it was, or whatever container, MKV, you know, whatever it was, it just seems like I would always, always click on a new one, you know, every other day. And, and I would just keep seeing cute AV and I would think I just changed it to Dragon yesterday. Well, you didn't do it for that container. So, um, for that format. So it, it used to get on my nerves before I understood what it was. And, and it's actually really, really, really useful. Um, if you, if you, you know, out of the box, cute AV is amazing. I mean, it will play everything that FFmpeg will play which is, again, practically everything. It uses FFmpeg and OpenAL and Qt, and like I say, it's got the library files and a little... Uh, I, I'm assuming that Qt AV is like the, the, the player itself. I'm assuming it's just a proof of concept, like a sample. I don't think Qt AV is actually... Like, I don't think they're selling, for lack of a better word, the player. I think they're they're selling, again, just not not literal selling, but I, I think it, it... I think they're... They're pitching to the world this really, really useful library. It happens to have a, a sample player bundled with it, but the, I think the selling point is this really useful multimedia uh, framework that that essentially is is sort of better, possibly, you know, arguably better uh, than Cute Multimedia. So there you go. That's Cute AV. Actually, really, really useful. I mean, whether you know whether it's being useful and being um being sort of pleasant to use are different things so whether whether you want to play your stuff in cute av is is entirely up to you and there's no sort of right or wrong answer like if if you like what you see and what it provides you then great um that's really that's really nice. Uh, I like I say I I don't use it myself and not for any good reason. Like it's a it's a really really great application. It does have like if you in the lower right corner of the application there's a little menu icon and it has all the stuff that that Dragon has. Absolutely. It's got variable speed, it's got uh the ability to loop playback, uh it's got the ability to set your subtitles and your audio tracks, uh, which channel you want to hear, what aspect ratio, the color space. You can adjust the color uh, of of the thing. So if you need to adjust the the you know the dimness and stuff, uh, you can do that. You can use CUDA to to playback. You can use um, you, you do that. You can create a playlist. You have a history of everything that you have played. You can play stuff from a URL. I mean, there's just it's endlessly useful. Like honest, like really, it's a great application. You should try it. I'm not saying you have to use it forever. I'm just saying you should try it. I mean. VLC is also an amazing player, and as I've said before, I haven't been using that lately either. I've just fallen into a, a thing where where Dragon happens to be playing the things that I want to watch, and so that's what I've gotten used to, and so I'm perfectly happy to just use Dragon. If, if Dragon goes away next KDE version, 
Plasma desktop version, then that's fine. I'm no, actually KDE version, right? Because Dragon isn't isn't the Plasma desktop. It's I don't know. Anyway, if Dragon goes away, that's okay. I will happily switch over to Qt AV or to VLC or to whatever other thing that I find. There's there's so many options out there, and this is one of those times in open source where where it's great to have all those options. This is a good time. This isn't like PyQt versus PySide. This is oh cool. I can have whatever player, and I can be as picky as I want about the stupidest, silliest little thing because nobody's nobody's paying attention. Like, it, it's... nobody cares. It's just my preference. I like that. Next up is um, SDL2, and SDL is the... it stands for Simple Direct Media Layer Version 2, in this case, because SDL2. And that is significant, because there was SDL, and there are things out there that depend on SDL specifically rather than SDL2. So SDL2, Simple Direct Media Layer, it is a cross-platform development library that gives a developer low-level access to the audio, the keyboard input, mouse, uh, joystick, graphics hardware. Uh, I guess that's all you really need, right? So it, it is a way to make pictures and sounds appear on screen and then to control things with, with your keyboard. So if that sounds like a little bit like a video game type thing, that's exactly what SDL can be. Um, I don't know that I've seen SDL used for anything but video games, but there might be some audio applications out there that do use SDL. So I could be, I could be, I could be mistaken, but SDL2 is very popular among video game creators, at least, you know, sort of, I guess, I guess independent video game. I mean, you know, you're not, you're not seeing SDL being used so much in your AAA video games. Uh, this is something that's a little, it's, it's, you know, among a certain set of people, this is an ubiquitous library. Other people less ubiquitous. And that's not to say that SDL2 isn't amazing. It's just not, you know, it's not, um, it isn't Godot. It's just SDL2. It, it gives you easy access to painting pixels, playing sounds, and controlling things, you know, picking up input. And it's kind of surprising sometimes. I mean, remember what I was saying about uh, PyQt and, and PySide and how programming was really hard and there were th- weird things that you would have to do that you would just think, I don't have to do that really, do I? Um, and here's an example, actually. So in in Python, if you're doing a video game, uh, or in Lua, if you're doing a video game, uh, you have to write code to pick up, and in Java, um, you have to write code to pick up like key presses. Like so, so if someone's you know pressing the W A S D keys on their keyboard, which for video gamers is a very common arrangement of up for W, A for left, D uh, for right, S for down, um, or south if you prefer. Um, if someone's pressing those keys on your in your video game, your video game doesn't natively care. Like, programming language doesn't, I mean, how could it? It it can't know whether you want to treat a WASD as up, down, left, right, or uh, whether you want to, I guess, up, left, down, right, Um, or, or whether you want to to pick up that those keys as someone is typing in the letters W A S D, which by the way comes out as dot uh, or rather comma A uh, O E in on Dvorak. So um, yeah, it doesn't know the computer doesn't know the programming language doesn't know. So you have to write that in. But it's not like you just have to write um, import video game control scheme or import W A S D 
control scheme or something like that. Um, no, you have to like create a function that gets called every, you know, couple of milliseconds or whatever. Um, and you have to detect which key is being pressed. If the key being pressed right now is double, you then will do something to the sprite that's on screen currently or the camera control or whatever it is you're moving. If it's A, then we'll do something different. If it's S and D, if it's something else entirely, the spacebar or the return or the escape key, then some other action needs to be taken. If it's something yet different, then just we'll just drop that signal. We don't care about that one. And, you know, and, and you have to go through all of that manually. And it is a very manual, you know, if-then kind of process. And every time you write it, you will think to yourself, surely there is a better way. Like, surely there's some some way that that this isn't how like there's got to be a better way to do this and and you know i mean there probably are somewhere there probably is uh, a better way somewhere but it's it's tough to find because it like i say like a programming language natively shouldn't really care what you're pressing and even a, a specific framework doesn't necessarily care because are you the sort of person who wants WASD or do you prefer the arrow keys? Or are your users expected to be using the mouse and some other assortment of keys or a gamepad or, or you know, what is actually the control scheme? And and I'm, I, I would be sur- surprised if there wasn't like a, a library for some video game framework out there where you can just import this schema and then we're done. The code the code is written for you already. We're just reusing it. But a lot of things out there, that's not how it happens. You do have to write that code. You have to come up with that logic. You have to re-implement it just like hundreds of people have done before you. SDL does not as far as I know, doesn't have a drop-in, you know, schema type thing. SDL, what what it does is that it it gives your your application a it gives it the power or the capability to monitor for those key presses because otherwise you're just what are you doing like you how are you going to get input from the user and 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 relate it to what's happening on screen with your graphics or your sounds or whatever you're showing or or playing well libsdl has that the the keyboard component sort of built in now now you can look you can look for keys key presses key releases maybe the you know whether they're holding it down, whether they've they've just pressed it, whether they've released it. You can listen to the mouse signals. You can uh, listen for um, joystick uh, control, and you can also play audio and, like I say, graphics. So really, really significant little library used by a lot of things. You'll see it a lot in the emulation space. You'll see it a lot in um, what's that one? I don't think it's considered an emulator. The one from LucasArts, the um, Scum, Scum V, Scum VM, Scum, yeah, Scum VM. Um, I, I'm pretty sure that uses SDL. Jeez, now I forget. But um, yeah, it's a really important library. You'll hear video gamer, video game developers talk about it a lot. Um, and not not all video game programmers, like I say, but some some this is ubiquitous. SDL2 underscore GFX. That's the SDL2 library providing graphics primitives and surface functions. So that means, for instance, drawing a line or a circle or a polygon. Once again, th- those are now classes. Those are those are objects that you can write really quickly in your game without having to reinvent the maths involved to to do geometry. Very significant. SDL two Im- underscore image. This one loads images. That's huge. And and you know, it's these are the things you don't think about when you're thinking how hard can it be to program? Surely you just write. Uh, 
display dot image parenthesis quote path to image close quote close parenthesis no that is not how you do it like that doesn't that if you're if you don't have a library that understands display dot image and i'm just making that up but i mean like that wouldn't do anything you you programming languages don't just know how to do stuff they're they're programming languages they are the tools you use to build the things that your computer does they don't do the thing that your computer does it's really surprising uh in a in a weird way you know because you just think well I'm, I'm sitting here in the 21st century um and i'm programming a computer i mean how how advanced is that surely there's just something that i can just there's a word I can type to make my the program that I am building will just load an image or something. Well, you can't. But SDL2 underscore image is a library that allows you to do that. You can type in some code to tell it to load in the data of some file and then to interpret that data in a certain way. Because, I mean, loading data is easy, right? You can You can look at the bits, you can load those into memory, but then what do you do with those? The programming language doesn't know. SDL2 underscore image understands what a JPEG is, a PNG, a Targa, a TIFF, bitmap, lots more. Uh, you know, GIF, BMP, all those things. SDL2 underscore mixer, that uh, as you can imagine, mixes sound together. So now you've got multi-channels of audio playing, which is important. You don't want a one, one, you know, you don't want your music track playing, and then when a when someone says something, the music has to drop out for a moment because it can only play one stream at a time. SDL2 underscore net. That's the networking library, so you can download things on from the internet. Um, that's really useful because I mean, especially if you want to be able to deliver downloadable content or updates, sdl2 underscore net would make that really pretty straightforward. sdl2 underscore ttf, that's the true type font library. So once again, you could load a font file as as just raw data, but then you'd have to tell your your program how to interpret that, which, I mean, you wouldn't want to do that. Why would you want to have to r- literally reinvent, like, how fonts work? Instead, you would just use SDL2 underscore TTF. It loads in that true type font and then displays it and, and can scale it appropriately without degradation and so on. That's all of the SDLs. It's a really important library. It, it is one of those libraries that it, it just, it's kind of the foundational library of, well, painting arbitrary graphics onto a screen. Of course, there are other ways of doing it. I mean, like Cute AV is using FFmpeg. That's a completely different thing. It's not using SDL. But other things do use SDL. Again, partly because I think you get both the, the, the marriage of graphics and audio and then you've got that underlying control scheme, or I shouldn't say control scheme, but um, you've got the 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 access that you would need to to various types of controllers to then correlate to the graphics and audio that you're that you're using. So, it's just really ideal for I think the format of interactive media on a computer. And I think that's everything for this episode. I mean, there's a lot more to cover, but I, th- I feel pretty good about that. That that got us through uh, those two episodes, this one and the previous one, got us through all the capital letter uh, libraries. So the SDLs were the last bunch. The next one, we're, we're in the A section, officially, lowercase a. So we'll start with A52 decoder and continue on from there. I, I don't know. Feel pretty good about some of the progress. I know I, I, I probably go on too much about some 
things. Other things are fine. Um, looking at this list, I'm not that uh, I'm, I'm not too frightened about it though. I, actually, it's it's I think it's going to be manageable. So that's a good thing. We'll continue library overview in the next episode. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open